0: I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. From Charles Darwin to sex robots, to the Big Bang and the Gospel of John, we are going to take a journey today into the wild and woolly world of faith and science, pertinent to the Lambeth Conference, of course but also really pertinent to anyone who knows anyone or is anyone with a bumper sticker or a yard sign or a social media account or a news feed or a smartphone or a smart home or vaccination and mask opinions, but really anyone who has lived in the cool and totally rational and totally objective days since the Enlightenment. Actually, we do throw a lot of shade on the Enlightenment. Maybe that's an episode for another time, Redeeming the Enlightenment or enlightening the enlightenment or something like that. I digress. Faith and science. How do we have these conversations? Evolution, artificial intelligence, COVID, when does life begin? How should it end? How do we have these conversations in ways that are charitable and as smart as possible? And also leave behind some of the, my yard sign is more loving than your yard sign babble, but also admit tough questions and pose rich gospel responses. Allow me, first of all, to send all of you to our blog, Covenant, to check out two of our most recent articles on faith and science. We're working on a series of them gearing up for Lambeth. One is by theologian Sarah Coakley on evolution, God, evolution, and cooperation, And another is by engineer-become-theologian pastor, Kara Slade. Follow the science? Yes and no. You can find links for both of those in the show notes. So today we're going to riff on Kara's article, and it is Kara who will be joining me today to talk about learning how to run our fingers along the seams of faith and science. They are not perfectly seamless. They're not two ways exactly of talking about the same thing. They don't always agree together quickly on the way, but that disagreement need not lead us into internecine Christian wars or into massive misunderstandings about science or depreciation of science and what it brings to the Christian faith. It need not lead us into battles with our neighbors, though it probably will lead us at times and for seasons into conflict with a prevailing ethic or vision of the world, especially when the vision threatens our ability to be human. Kara Slade is Associate Rector of Trinity Church in Princeton, New Jersey, and Canon Theologian of the Diocese of New Jersey. She shepherds Anglican and Episcopal students at Princeton Theological Seminary. She holds a PhD in Mechanical Engineering and Materials Science, and a PhD in Theology, both from Duke University. Her latest book is The Fullness of Time, Jesus Christ, Science, and Modernity by Whitfenstock. Keep your test tubes at one elbow and your Bible at the other, and we hope you enjoy the conversation.
1: You know, I, full disclosure, I um, I had to start on prednisone a couple days ago because I messed up my back, and so I've had like three hours of sleep, and I'm very punchy, so I have no filter. I have to you edit me to sound smarter than I feel at the moment. I
0: could edit you to sound smarter than you feel. It's probably impossible to edit you to sound smarter than you are, but I also will <laughs> not edit you to be less funny than you sound.
1: Okay. All right. All right. That sounds good. Kara,
0: thanks so much for joining us today. It's an honor to have you. Yeah.
1: Well, it's just a joy to be here. So thanks so much, Amber.
0: Okay. So let's start with a little personal question. Where and when did you and
1: I meet? So we met at Duke Divinity School uh, when I was doing my MDiv. And and you were there, as, were you MTS or MDiv? I, I did an MDiv. You were mm-hmm. MDiv. Yeah, no, right? I didn't smoke as yeah. many cigarettes as um, the
0: MTS students. Yeah, you did
1: an MDiv. <laughs> 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 and um, and so we've we've known each other since then. You know, Duke Divinity School has some wonderful things going on in Anglican studies, and it was a it was just a real blessing to be able to study with an ecumenical group of students. Having grown up in the Episcopal Church, you know, I feel like I'm one of the few (laughs) people who can still say that 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 applies to me of of my age. You and I and this other
0: woman named Brittany ended up in a small group together. Yes. And the three of us were all in various stages of various levels of tumultuous, but vocational discernment. We were all kind of like, we don't have a clear path. What are we doing? And so we, by, I think Providence got thrown together in this little small group, um, spiritual formation group. And uh, do you remember we called ourselves the Island of Misfit Toys?
1: (laughs) I do, I do. Um, And the Misfit Toys experience was something that I tell my students here at PTS. Oftentimes they're 25, 26, really fairly soon out of undergrad. And there's a, such a sense that I need to have my five year plan, my 10 year plan mapped out, all my vision board vision boarded of what my ministry is gonna be. And to be able to tell people, hey, from my experience, um, it, it works out, and you can't see how that's gonna work out yet. Can you tell us what you were up to professionally
0: before you went to divinity school? You worked yeah. for a little organization called NASA that I think some people have heard of. So what mm-hmm. did God do with you yeah. there and, and take you from being a scientist full time to being a minister?
1: You know, I, I became a mechanical engineer um, because, because I found it interesting because um, it was a family business in some ways. My dad was a, had a PhD in chemistry. My mom was a nurse and then a nursing Instructor, And so science was kind of very familiar to me. I was very, very good at it, ended up getting a PhD in engineering, um, went to work for, for NASA. And I would say that what happened with me when I was working there wasn't, it, it was never a case that I had one moment where I said, ah, yes, um, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to go in a different direction. And I would also say that I'd always been a practicing Episcopalian. Mm -hmm. I was never somebody who didn't go to church. But sometimes I'll tell people, I think for a long time, I believed in the church more than I believed in Jesus. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes that can happen with Episcopalians. Like you, (laughs) you know what to do with the prayer book, but you're not sure what to do with the Lord, the prayer book is about <laughs> um, the Lord, and <laughs> and I, you I started working for NASA right before September 11th,
0: and oh, um,
1: it became a really weird. It was a really strange time to work in government, and in the midst of all of the the Afghanistan war and the Iraq war and um, being adjacent to an Air Force base and working with DOD some, it just became really kind of personally complicated for me. And it, it was crystallized in the experience of praying noonday prayer um, while I could hear fighters flying by my window. There was a little bit of a cognitive dissonance that went on with that. and And I think that was one thing that contributed to just a kind of, general personal disintegration over the uh, five or six years that that I worked there. And it just became very clear to me that this was not where I should be. Hmm. Um, And I was really fortunate that the guy who was the associate rector at the church where I went in Norfolk, Virginia, suggested to me, said, you know, have you ever thought about going back to school and studying like ethics of technology? And I thought, well, you know, that's something that I could do. And then initially, I thought, well, um, I I could get a master's degree, and then maybe I can teach high school or something like that. Um, one thing led to another, <laughs> and um, Jesus happened to me in a really profound way. While I was while I was in seminary, honestly, things crystallized. The process of theological study for me was really a process of falling deeper and deeper and deeper in love with Jesus Christ, of getting very, very clear about the who that we worship. Um, in, in, In the liturgy, in the prayer book, with falling in love with the story of Scripture and turning towards what it means to proclaim that word in a world that I think struggles to hear it. It was never the case for me that I had this one set of knowledge and then I'm going to add this other set of knowledge to it and make them blend together seamlessly. Um, I knew that there was going to be some kind of a seam because my experience in the world of technology and the aerospace business was complicated.
0: And I love how you mentioned a seam. And I think that when you write and a lot of your ministry, Kara, goes along a seam where you're trying to say, these are these are not totally separate things, nor are they seamless. Let's find the actual human reality that we're living in and do some discernment there. So when you say, should we follow the science? Yes and no. What brought you to write this article for us? What was it that instigated it? Well, uh,
1: other than the fact that you guys asked me to do it. Um, oh,
0: well, <laughs> we are a little bossy uh, sometimes.
1: In the current reality that we're living in with covid you could see popping up, you know, in in my neighborhood here in Princeton, these kind of yard signs like you have with political campaigns. It says, you'll honk if you love science, right? Or, um, you know, science is real or, you know, and then they'll have this sign. In this house, we believe, and they'll have all of these statements, you know, science is real, love equals love, uh, Black Lives Matter. And these are all, you know, statements with which I would agree, but – I get really touchy about the statements like science is real, what does real mean? Or statements like follow the science, as if science is this kind of authoritative thing that drops down from heaven and pronounces objective truths over a tremendously wide range of topics. I want us to step back for just a second and see how we got here. If we think back to the 1700s and then really blossoming in the 1800s as these voyages of discovery are going on, people are discovering more and more about physics and biology especially. People like Charles Darwin, his contemporaries, um, in exploring what evolution means, what different scientific Things that are just being discovered mean they start taking on the role of the explainer of what it means to be human. And this was an ecclesial role for most of, most of Christian history, right? The church had a, the kind of the account of what it means to be human. And here then there are other people who are coming along with stories, telling stories of what it means to be human. And they have the advantage of from a public relations standpoint of claiming that they don't also have a story. You know, um, Mm, what is mm -hmm. it Stanley Harawas says about the story? The Enlightenment story is claiming that you don't have a story. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And and this is kind of how scientific authority develops. And more and more people look to scientific, especially scientific popularizers to explain to them what it means to be human. And what gets hidden a lot of times in this is the fact that there's a politics that goes along with it. If you look at um, Charles Darwin's book on the the origins of man, wow, there's so much politics in it.
0: What? Really? And so
1: it becomes important to tease out, yeah, it's crazy that that these objective things i 'm making scare quotes with my with my fingers you can 't oh, see it on the okay. radio
0: <laughs> I can um, see it she is doing that
1: that these objective <laughs> yes these um objective truths about what it means to be human you know kind of descend from on high, and then that the fact that that there being a politics in that also extends to things like how we look at COVID, how we respond to COVID. Well, can it I pause the you there for a second, Kara? Could I pause you there yeah. just
0: for a second? Because how exactly, because Darwin's origin of species and what was happening there is just so important to seeing how we've gotten to where we are today with COVID and, and with different differing Christian ideas and levels of belief about climate change and all this. So... I'm still. I still haven't quite caught how Origin of Species is also making political claims. Can you give us some examples of specific things that he's saying or pulling out that then would be would would get included in people who are then using his research? They're also pulling with them some of these philosophical, political, anthropological assumptions. What
1: are some of those? Well, a really good example of this you can find in Darwin's Darwin's other books, *The Descent of Man*. Darwin is very, very keen on tracing a continuity between the evolution of other animals and the evolution of humans. Right, so it's not that humans are somehow a special case, but that we can see how protozoa evolved into primates evolved into people. And in the course of arguing this really hardcore continuity between uh, non-human animals and humans, he starts making comparisons based on self-awareness and memory and cognition um, as a way that you can draw these continuities. And he uses the example of, well, imagine a um, a well-trained hunting dog. And this hunting dog has been a faithful companion for years and years, um, is so smart, always finds the bird, all of these things. Can we not say, he'll argue, that, that this hunting dog lying by the fire and remembering the glories of the hunt has more awareness and memory than it, and I've I'm sorry, this is his language is not great, than an Aboriginal woman who doesn't know what numbers mean. Hmm. Okay. And so so he's arranging people on a trajectory so that, you know, some non-human animals are actually higher up on the developmental scale than some humans, and that's racialized, right? And oh, it's mm-hmm. you know, it's really easy to kind of throw the the racial spaghetti at the wall and, and hope that it sticks everywhere. But in this case, it's really true that ideas about who counts as rational, um, who counts as objective, who counts as fully human are very ingrained in Darwin's thought. That doesn't make his description of an other biologists' description of how species happen. Not true. But it does give us pause to say, well, when people start saying things about comparisons of human beings Mm -hmm. or about the capacities of human beings via each other, then we really need to put the brakes on and say, "What, what are you doing here? And it happens so often in writings of evolutionary biology that you know, at some point you have to wonder, is this kind of a feature of the discipline and not a bug? Um, hmm. And if you look at folks like Stephen Jay Gould um, and a, a gentleman who teaches at UNC Charlotte, uh, John Marks is a biological anthropologist, really, really hammering on this point that evolutionary biology can really easily drift over into scientific racism or, that evolutionary arguments can be picked up and deployed by, you know, really pernicious racists in order to make those points.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And even if it's not, even when it's not weaponized in such a pointed way, it's still making judgments about where human dignity and identity lie. How can we identify a real human? Well, we can identify who's a real human by those who have high levels of this, that, or the other. We say, oh, a human is someone who has, you know, we point to memory or we point to a quote unquote rational capacity. And in the case of comparing a dog with a great memory and lucid dreams to a woman who has never learned algebra, we're also looking at education, (laughs) level of education. So then that also gets into really troubling waters, not only racialized, but also, Looking at the way that uh, brain function, different, you know, we're we're saying what makes a human a real human is a certain level and kind of brain function, which is very troubling when you look at aging, when you look at children and infants and children who are in the womb, when you look at people who have intellectual differences or disabilities. There's just a whole range of troubling things there that that lock into. Uh, these racial problems as well. And I see the, I think that we can, we can all see this problem, but I wonder too, can science ever inform what it means to be human? You know, when could faith learn from science? Is that possible? So can you speak a little more into the problem here, but also say, there might be something that science is trying to do that's not entirely objective. Can it have a kind of philosophical role that can be
1: helpful to faith? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And in my own career, I I did my master's degree in nonlinear dynamics and chaos theory. And there was a lot of thinking about what does it mean to, to imagine... Um, something that's not two dimensions or three dimensions, but like 2.74 dimensions. What? It's a cause of, of wonder. Yes, right? It's a, um, And to look at the, if you've ever looked at fractals or, or these different images from, um, from chaotic mathematics, they're beautiful. They're beautiful. They inspire wonder. Um, the same thing is true with the images that we see from, um, from exploration of planets, from the our various space telescopes that enable us to see things that we've never been able to see before, to and to look at, you know the the birds and the fishes. I mean these mm. these things all inspire wonder mm-hmm. at God's creation, mm-hmm. and the scientific impulse, the the best of it, um, is the impulse to understand that wonder the source of wonder deep more deeply Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. we do this through a process of okay i'm going to make a hypothesis maybe it works maybe it doesn't we test this and it's a communal process and that too Mm. um can be a very good thing but it's also incumbent on us as science people to um, to be aware that this is not an un does not result in um, things that are always an unqualified good. When people talk about um, you know, the intersections of of science and theology, we love to look at um, at the space telescope, or love to look at quantum mechanics, or turtles or tortoises in the Galapagos Islands. These things are great. We like to look at the instruments that have allowed us to view these things. We don't like to look at the fact that, it's, you know, the same processes that let us understand the intricacies of how atoms work together, how atoms function, also gave us the bomb. How can we be aware of what we're doing in a way that we don't make more bombs? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Interested in strengthening your Anglican formation or strengthening the formation of someone on your staff or in your diocese? Come and join us or send a few lucky people to Oklahoma City this September for Love's Redeeming Work, a two-day conference specially tailored for clergy and seminarians as a deep dive into the Anglican tradition, the history, theology, preaching, and beauty. It'll be a rich time of fellowship, learning, shared meals, and prayer. Keynote speakers include the Rev. Dr. Ephraim Radner and the Right Rev. Joseph Galgalo. Check it out at tlci.livingchurch.org forward slash calendar, or just click the link in the show notes to see the schedule and register. That's tlci.livingchurch.org forward slash calendar, or click the link in the show notes. The word that comes to mind when you're talking here is the word humility. Humility. I keep thinking, you said wonder, and as soon as you said wonder, I just thought, and also humility, because that's the position that real wonder puts you in. And it seems to me that it's, that humility is one of the dispositions that makes for a good scientist and also a good priest, I would say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And a good I, human I being. So. Yes. We are all, we're sort of odd. I, I, I tend to use the word odd um, by the wonder of God's creation and in having conversations between people of faith and scientific people, but also knowing that scientific people are also often people of faith. Right. I mean, it's not like these are two separate categories. Some of my uh, supervisors at NASA were card carrying Pentecostal assembly of God folks. So wow, um, it's not like these are two separate. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, um, so it's not that these were two separate Categories that never overlap, right? Mm. But um, the the guy who ended up funding and still, I guess, funds with his foundation, the John M. M. Templeton Foundation, a lot of work that happens on science and theology. Um, you know, he wrote this book called A Humble Approach. He's re- his approach was really to to try to create this seamless set of knowledges Mm -hmm. and to approach what we're doing when we talk about science and theology as a kind of blending of knowledges so that each kind of informs each other from the same footing and everybody Mm -hmm. kind of that everything works together well
0: Mm -hmm. you know it's a bit of a kumbaya kind of a kumbaya approach
1: yeah yeah it's a bit of a kumbaya approach and a question that I'm always concerned with is when or if any kind of scientific knowledge should be allowed to override doctrine. Mm. Um, the, I guess, the classic example of this is uh, creatio ex nihilo, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that God creates from nothing. Okay. Well, we have these, you know, ever more powerful state- space telescopes that let us. See back towards the, you know, supposedly the the origins of the universe, um, but what if we and what if some combination of space telescopes and other physics research comes to the conclusion that um, the universe has always been here? Well, that would lead some people to conclude, well, creatio ex nihilo can't be true. Okay, um, that. In the beginning, God spoke, and there was right. Is not the way that works. But you know, doctrinally, uh, you know, this is, and I'll put my card on the table here. I'm not interested in. And I learned this from from Willie James Jennings. I'm not interested in a God who only works to rearrange the status quo, mm. right? Who, if God just sort of takes what has exist exists already and Kind of squishes it together into things. Well, then, what does that say about status quo's of our own time, um, or God's sovereignty over the status quo's of our own time? Well, maybe God can arrange them a little better, but can't actually speak redemption into them. I, I, that kind of, that really bothers me, and I'm really, really committed to the idea that God creates, you know, God as Trinity creates and that that all that is came into being through the word right and so I think that would be an example of where doctrine has to say no like stop (laughs) you know you you, you're not gonna you're not gonna overwrite this claim because you really don't know what you're talking about in the end
0: yeah so if we hold that the the revealed that what god has revealed god's word is what we are following first and foremost in the person of jesus christ that this is our jesus is lord this is our authority we're following we're following this in all of our stumblings and misapprehensions and and sins and all of this and so we don't follow the science the same way as we follow the lord yeah. so we're following the science yes and no yeah and so I'm wondering if if now we can give a little uh, more definition to the yes and the no. And I'm going to make a guess at the yes based on what we've talked about so far. So maybe the shape of, yes, follow the science. Do what the bumper sticker says in this case, Christians, which is that science can and does absolutely lead more deeply into The fullness of all of those realities that are revealed in the historic faith uh, that's given as a gift, but with surprises along the way about how that works and how that plays out. We thought one of the ways that it worked for sure the solar system revolves around the earth because God made us special. Well, yes, God gave human beings a special dignity and has shown a special favor to the planet earth because we blew it. <laughs> so God showed us a special favor and now is elevating us just unbelievably. Um, thanks be to God, you know, that we we don't deserve that, but it's happening. But that doesn't mean the rest of the solar system is doing its dance around us. It, in fact, is revolving around the sun. Uh, you know, similar to we, we can't possibly have this deep genetic relationship to other primates, to quote unquote, lower primates because of this, that, and the other. Well, what if we do? And if we did, and if that turned out to be the case, could it still be that human beings specially, are in the image and the likeness of God? And in that case, what does that mean? And how does that become more glorious rather than less glorious in light of the science that we're able to follow in light of the sense in which we're able to follow the science?
1: Yeah, you just said what I, what I was going to say. So um, <laughs> I don't have that much. To... I think that that's exactly right. So I saw a meme on the Internet. It came from some atheist Twitter account, right? And it had this picture of the, the Milky Way and it had this arrow pointing at, at the Earth, right? Which is a little dot in this enormous you know, constellation, galaxy of, um, of things. And it had this little arrow and it said, ah, oh, yes, you know, God chooses this place. And I want to say, oh, yes, this, but unironically. Yeah. Like this is actually, <laughs> this is actually it, right? Yes. Um, uh-huh. God, That's exactly God the joke. Of, That's exactly the know, joke. <laughs> a God who, yeah, a God who chooses particularity, who chooses to take on human flesh particularly to take on Jewish flesh, particularly to take on flesh in this outpost of the Roman empire, particularly um, yes, chooses this place from which to redeem the universe. And I'm, you know, I'm a good party. And I believe that the, you know, the cross and resurrection, you know, is, <laughs> is a kind of cosmic, like, there's nothing that's, like, outside of it somehow, right? But that it starts from this particularity. You know, that particularity and that all-sufficiency um, of what God does for us on the cross, you know, um, and says so wonderfully in the right one service, is one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice um, for the sins of the whole world. And, um, and I think that really has to be at the heart of how Christians engage with engage with the world in general as well as engage with science. You know, the one claim upon which the whole, you know, revealed edifice is built. I mean, if you take this away, then there's really nothing. The whole thing collapses. Is Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again.
0: In the beginning was the Word, and this is what... Correct happened to the word when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So if you start with what happened to him and where he is now (laughs) and, and move back to what John sees and says about the word we have touched with our hands and we've seen with our eyes, which is always tantalizing to me when I read that in, in the epistle. Yes. And then you can go back and say, well, this word that was in the beginning there was, there was also another description of the beginning. Oh, that was in the beginning of this book. Okay. Well then what does that say? And if the word was the one, if he is the one through whom all this happened now, what now, what now, what does this mean? Exactly. Now we're in the 2.7th dimension. (laughs) And so I wonder, actually, this is, this is a question I've had for a while, Kara. It has to do with current discourse. When I Think about the bumper sticker war or the or the yard sign war that people have. it's just feels sort of like a Tower of Babel versus Tower of Babel situation. yeah, and so we're as 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 Christians we're not called to just sort of have a louder, bigger, taller tower of Babel. Yep. it's Pentecost heals us. Do Christians or even Anglicans have special gifts or resources for discernment and engagement when facing, Scientific scientific discoveries and scientific questions even if they're ground shaking what what benefit do Christians or even Anglican yeah. you know the Anglican tradition what is what are these what are Christian resources that help us
1: Pentecost is we speak in tongues differently but that are comprehended by each other right and that's mm-hmm. different than like this sort of strictly undoing Babel mm-hmm. right. Um, so we still have different languages going on, but that we're listening, we're learning to hear each other. And I always have thought that these conversations can't start on the level of knowledge. On the level of how do I make my claims of material truth interact with your claims of material truth? I maybe a, a priest, a theologian who used to be an engineer, and you might be um, a, a chemist now. And, you know, we both find ourselves in this situation where we're worried about the future, we're worried about our kids, we're worried about our country, um, we're worried about making ends meet at the grocery store. And that Jesus says, I, peace, this, my peace is not as the world gives. This is not as the world gives, but my peace I give to you, my own peace I leave with you. And so can we start to have these conversations on that level? And then, you know, we can unfold into questions of knowledge. But I think it has to start on the level of the essentially human Um, and on the level of what it means to be human, what it means to live a moral life. And then hopefully, you know. The questions, the conversations can be had. Well, why do you believe that this is what it means to live the good life? And, you know, different people have different answers to that. But that's the more interesting place to start.
0: Can God's people be some of the most human humans? Is that one of the vocations that God has given to us or restored to us or translated to us and given to us to be in the most human human there is, who's, who is the Lord Jesus. So God's people through him, we can be some of the most human humans, which means some of the most humble, some of the most vulnerable, some of the most willing to give way on anything that's not necessary to, the faith <laughs> to the you know to to holding on to the faith and holding on to faithfulness, but I just wonder, Kara, whether one of the callings of the church, especially in our time, when we've got some scientific advancements, honestly, that that are I should say technological advancements based on science, but bad philosophy, in my opinion, that they're moving in some directions that are not too thoughtful and are kind of trying to redefine what it means to be human or what it could be to be human in ways that are really cracking the boundaries in, in harmful ways. But if, but if what of if our calling is to be some of the most humble, vulnerable, natural people that there are, then what would that mean for a time that seems to have a lot of knowledge, but also a lot of confusion about what it means to be a human, what it means to be a good person, what it means to live a good life.
1: Well, i say I'm always suspicious of the word natural, so I want to bracket huh. that one.
0: Huh. Um, okay, that's fine. We'll bracket because, it. For
1: this uh, one. yeah, <laughs> I'm going to bracket the word natural um, because that opens a lot of uh, various cans of worms that I don't want to. Again, that would be a separate podcast, but I think um, you know this idea of Christ as the most human, human as Herbert McCabe said, perfectly had no fear of loving. You know, what does that mean for our own lives? And, you know, I think especially as we look at, it becomes very clear at the margins of life, right? So at the margins of birth and at the margins of death and in how we think about illness and how we interact with people who are ill Um how we can resist the whole notion of a you know a life not worth living? Say, oh, this person is a you know is somehow a life not worth living, or of measuring people by productivity. Nietzsche was a very <laughs> a man who suffered a lot and and got a lot of things wrong, but I think he was right in saying that. Why do you think that? Um, that if an idea of Christian morality goes away, that what comes next is going to be more enlightened, or is it going to be, you know, really uh, sheer power, sheer exercise of power. And, and I think that this idea that we've been sort of sharing for centuries, but in, in again, scare quotes, the West um certainly, but um, in places with the at least a vestigial, shared Christian understanding that um, that the lives of the vulnerable have to be protected, that we need to take care of each other when and especially when people can't take care of themselves, that when people are are very, very ill, our response to that has to be to care for them and not to help them kill themselves. Um, again, something that I'm really, really strongly oppose. How can we as Christians witness to the infinite worth of the lives that are the most vulnerable, the most fragile, I think is an increasingly important question. And also, how can we as Christians witness to the ways that technology can impinge, especially upon our being made for relationship with each other? You know, i I wrote a little piece in Living Church a while back, I think for Covenant, on um, why people shouldn't have sex with robots. And I had done a little bit of research on this and then I, I dropped it. Because they did,
0: don't call the morning after.
1: I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, I don't want to be the girl who talks about sex robots. So I kind <laughs> of um, <laughs> I've dropped that as a research topic and decided I would do epistemology instead. But, But I think it is true that there is an impulse today to technologize those things that really are at the deepest level of what it means to be human, our, our most deep, our deepest intimacies, right. To, um, to outsource that to a technology. But I think that also relates to, I, I did a little uh, thing for American Academy of religion on the relationship between outsourcing that kind of, human intimacy to robots and outsourcing war to robots. So um, increasingly we see the use of uh, a manned aerial vehicles in, in war for, um, for surveillance, but then increasingly for combat so that at some level we, we can pretend that we're not doing what we're doing and it makes it easier to do those things right. When we can pretend there's also, you know, and I have a, a tremendous concern these days about um, the development of artificial intelligence, especially mm-hmm. as it is used to replace human labor with, you know, AI. And this is not just for like factory things, but uh, you can have like robotic legal writers, oh you know, AI, wow. AI lawyers or something, right? Wow. Um, or AI, I think you've, maybe you've seen these things, AI um, bloggers. Right. If you know, if your company is too lazy to oh, yeah, if your company is too lazy to hire an actual writer, you can have an AI write for your, you know, write to produce writing. And I, I think they've done this with news stories, too. So, you know, outsourcing to technology isn't just a, um, a manual labor thing. It, it, you know, it comes for all of us in the end. And again, God has given us work to do. Mm-hmm. Um, this is part of our humanity, again, um, mm-hmm. the dignity of our labor and the ways that, again, that, um, that technology works against our human dignity.
0: And I think sometimes, and I'm completely guilty of this, fully admit, we can resist technological advances because it sounds scary, but we don't know why. And I think that that instinct is a good one. I mean, a dog's hackles raise for a reason. It could be a bad reason. You know, they're just Mm -hmm. afraid of men in general, you know, and that's you have to teach the dog better than that. So our instincts aren't fully sanctified, but they do give us information and they're not completely always wrong either. But we still need more information to go on. So it's not just that AI sounds scary and we have a lot of Isaac Asimov stories to tell us, don't do this, which please read Isaac Asimov. (laughs) He wasn't stupid, but it's also, I was talking yesterday at lunch after church with a fellow parishioner who is an engineer and he works with data for Chick-fil-A. And he said, one of the interesting things about AI and analytics is that, and he's somebody who who has to do this for the company. Is that when you start taking things that are objective facts, that are um, statistics, for example, who buys what and when, who buys more things if you give them a coupon, where do people live? He said a lot of these statistics are going to start being based on income level. They're start. They're going to start being based on ethnicity and race. They're going to start. If the, if you let AI, if you allow AI. To intelligently interpret this information and start trying to make more money for you based on the information it's receiving, it will begin making racist choices. It will begin making choices that are bringing good business to wealthier people and charging more money for chicken sandwiches, for giving fewer coupons to poorer people. Mm -hmm. So you have to have vanguards who actually, in a way, have to teach the AI ethics. You have to reprogram them to make more ethical decisions and to keep them from just doing what you give them to do algorithmically. So it was fascinating to me to hear that even an artificial intelligence needs some kind of an, even an artificial sense of justice in order to not become enmeshed in the system of, of of human sin and brokenness, even artificial.
1: One of the best philosophers of science on Twitter is um, is actually MC Hammer. I mean, you remember MC Hammer? It what can't touch this? Yeah, right? I didn't think he could but, touch yeah. this, but apparently um, he can touch he this area. He really can't. He's, I mean, like unironically brilliant. Um, this has kind of been his interest for years, and he says really, really um, cogent things, and of course as a, as a rapper, he can put things succinctly and he had this tweet says, you know, when you measure include the measurer, right. Oh boy. You can't yes. separate the measurement from the person who's doing it. And so I would say also, you know, when you build, it includes the builder. Hmm. Um, and so whatever assumptions that, um, that the builder brings to the technology, you know, those things are going to be reflected, you know? And so then the question becomes, you know, <laughs> the McIntyre question, right? Who's justice? Which rationality? whose ethics gets programmed into these systems? And it can't be whichever ethics is the easiest to program, right? Um, yeah. You know. Meanwhile, um, you know, like your your Chick Fil A friend discovers, you know, we we set these things go, and here's what we end up with. Um. So it's a it's a huge question, and again, this is why Christians can't retreat, right from Technology. Christians can't retreat from pursuing scientific knowledge, from pursuing scientific developments. Um, this is a tremendously important vocation. Young Christians, your gifts are needed there. You know, we have a role to play in in making sure that whatever we develop technologically reflects the best of our humanity, right? And reflects, you know, who we believe shown us how to be human.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's, that this brings us back really well to the flip side of the question, what does science bring to faith, which we've already asked. And I think, Kara, yeah. that this is what faith brings to science, or at least part of what it brings to science, or shows us yeah. the, the seam, or shows us the yes and the no, follow the science, yes and no. Because this is where revelation is vital. When you said the builder, if you're going to build, show me the builder that just made me think of the scripture that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Yeah. And the rev that is the revelation of Jesus Christ is that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It's marvelous yeah. in our eyes. So this question of being in awe and wonder, this is the marvel. This is the word that that we see revealed when we look in the through the Hubble telescope but it's not, it's one that has to be revealed to us. It's not one that we just find on our own because on our own, we're builders who reject that cornerstone over and over again. Yeah. And so science is this human enterprise and it's this place at which we can meet in community, you know, discover and rediscover our communion with other creatures, learn about the ways of God, about the world. It can enrich and humble us. It can enrich our lives and help us to create better systems for living in this world. But we only have one Lord. We only have, there, there is one ultimate authoritative builder who is also the cornerstone and he loves us. And he, as you said, defines what it is to be human. Science cannot do that for us. So science, technology, whenever they encourage power or blindness or human hiding, hiding from each other, hiding from God, should we follow yeah. the science in that case? No. <laughs> but when it's helping us to live, to be human, to help others live, to to help others be human and to experience the love of God for them as much as they can and for as long as they can in this life, then should we follow the science? Yeah. Yeah, we probably can.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when we ha- we see some folks say, well, faith, not fear, um, we're talking about vaccination or COVID and these kinds of things. I'm like, no, don't do that. OK, that's a, just a tremendously unhelpful, almost Gnostic kind of approach that, to say, well, and I think as Anglicans, we can really contribute to this conversation because we're not afraid of the material. Right. We we use all of the you know, we we bring created things to the glory of God. Right? That's what it means to be a sacramental people. Um, that's what it means to be a people who take seriously the role of beauty. So I think as Anglicans, we can see how people can bring this wonderful developments of science to bear on really pressing issues in ways that um, you know faith includes the prudent use of the fruits of medical research. And so I think it is important for us to be engaged with people who are doing scientific work for people who are Christians to be doing scientific work and not to not to set ourselves apart in these polarities while also knowing that we sometimes do have different languages.
0: I have been speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Kara Slade. Cara, it's been so great to see you again, to talk with you, to have this incredible conversation. Thanks for being with us.
1: Oh, it's awesome to be here, um, Amber, and I'm just so grateful for you um, and for all of the work that the Living Church does to sustain conversation in the life of the church.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a good rating, leave us a review. And if you want to email me at, at LivingChurch.org with any feedback, encouragement, or ideas you have, The slate for the fall is in production, and it includes some things that listeners have suggested to me. In two weeks, we will hear from the Reverend John Jameson, also known as John Jameson of the band Delta Spirit, on what he has learned about ministry, leadership, and the spiritual life from being a musician, specifically from being a bassist in an indie rock band. Until then, I'm still your host, Amber Noel, and it's been good to be with you. Peace.